3: It was early one morning, it was back in 1991, it was January, it was hot. I left the radio on.
4: This is Maggie Iaquinto, a ham radio operator in the small town of Kolak, Australia.
3: And I was up very early in the morning and having a cup of coffee and I heard this crackle. I thought, oh, this is interesting. And I heard this deep, heavy rushing going, CQ, CQ, CQ. This is U-2MIR. Looking for contacts.
4: U-2MIR, the Soviet space station. I
3: was so happy. I was unbelievably happy. I said, well, this is it. Mm. And with great nervousness, I, I pressed the transmit button. And I said, you too, M-I-R, this is VK3CFI, C-F-I. the handle is Maggie, over.
4: Maggie had been trying to make contact for years.
3: And should anyone have seen me at six in the morning out on my little street in Kolak dancing? And I, 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 wow, I've done it. We all live in the Russian spaceship.
4: She was about to start a long and pretty special relationship with the Soviet space station. Sky blue. <laughs> and with a certain cosmonaut.
3: Sergei Krikalyov. So, Sergei, let's leave it at that. Okay.
4: But Maggie's connection to Sergei wouldn't just be a cool story to whip out at dinner parties.
5: Within an hour, the crowd was heading to the seat of Soviet power.
4: As the Soviet Union unraveled in 1991,
5: Red Army armored personnel carriers on
1: the streets of- It
4: was Maggie who would tell Sergei the truth about what was happening in his country.
1: Armored personnel carriers rolled by, carrying scores of troops, some of them brandishing machine guns.
4: And Sergei and the other cosmonauts were hungry for the news.
3: And they called it R-I-T-A, Rita, which is my name in Russian. This
4: is CNN Breaking News.
3: So Rita's information. So I was their information
6: source. Good evening, I'm Gene Randall in Washington. We are standing
4: the information five, Maggie uh, gave Sergei proved crucial because it would help him make the choice of a lifetime. To stay or to go. To a day even historians may have trouble describing a day when Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as the president of a Soviet Union which had already ceased to exist. I'm Lance Bass, and from Kaleidoscope, iHeart Podcast, and Exile content, this is The Last Soviet.
0: Helen Sharman becoming the first Briton in space. She blasted off with two Soviet cosmonaut repairmen on a mission designed chiefly to repair the aging Mir space station that has been orbiting the globe for five years now.
4: On May 18th, 1991, Helen Sharman, the British woman who won the TV contest, blasted off into space. Alongside her were the Soviet cosmonauts Sergei Krikalev and Anatoly Artabasky. They were leaving behind a country in chaos, a country literally breaking apart at the seams. The republics Estonia. A human chain of protest. Lithuania.
2: Crackdown in the Baltic Republic
4: of Lithuania. Latvia. The Lithuanian flag was raised and they sang the national anthem. They were demanding independence. The parliament in the capital city of Baku voted unanimously to make Azerbaijan an independent republic. But at that particular moment, flying through space in a tiny capsule... Helen wasn't really thinking about what was happening on Earth. She was just enjoying the
6: ride. A few hundred kilometers above the Earth's surface, you can see that the Earth is curved. You can see vast sections of the Pacific Ocean, the whole of Western Europe, in one go. Beautiful. Inspiring.
4: After 48 hours, she finally arrived at the Mir space station.
6: As Helen
5: Sharman, Soyuz spacecraft, docked with the Mir station last Monday... It was the realization of a dream that started more than two years ago.
6: I remember opening the hatch I went through first. It was just so nice to float into these long, thin modules. Feeling weightless, I remember being the most natural, relaxing feeling I'd ever had.
4: As she floated in zero gravity for the first time, Helen discovered her home for the next week tunnels with tight walls and low ceilings, wires, screens, keyboards, and transmitters stuck to every available surface. The space station Mir was a technological marvel, humanity's only outpost in space, and the Soviets had created it. But in their rush to get it up there, Comfort had to take a back seat. So the place was kind of a dump. Reeking of mold, mites, and body odor. And thanks to my NSYNC tour days, I can actually imagine what that smells like. Like five sweaty teenage boys in a bus for months. Not pretty. Helen was going up there for a week. But Anatoly and Sergei, for five months. For it all to work, everything had to be super organized.
6: Mission Control planned certainly my time to the nearest five minutes
4: five minutes
6: we were told when we needed to awake
4: around 7 a.m moscow time have a space shower meaning wipe your body down with a wet
6: towel and typically we would have breakfast together
4: chicken with prunes bread candy coffee not my usual breakfast in fact i'm not the biggest fan of russian food but i guess it's certainly filling
6: and there was you know only one toilet in use so you know we have to work around each other in that respect
4: yeah in space even something as simple as peeing becomes a whole operation everyone gets their own custom shaped funnel which is attached to a vacuum hose when you gotta go you have to hold the funnel right up against you unless you want to end up surrounded by droplets of floating pee and that is gross after all that The showering, the eating, the peeing, the cosmonauts are ready to get down to some actual work. Because the station wasn't in great shape. There were power outages, computer failures, leaks. It needed constant maintenance. And that is why our guy Sergei was there. He was the engineer. And his job was to fix all these problems. To keep the station running. To keep the dream of Soviet space alive.
0: Cosmonauts Anatoly Artsenbarsky and Sergey Grigolev will spend five months and plan a record eight walks in space as they go about repairing the Mir station.
4: Helen Sharman had her own special job on Mir a space farmer. She was growing wheat, potatoes, she even planted a lemon tree. Growing food in space. A bit like Matt Damon in The Martian.
5: The scientific experiments she took part in weren't going to win any Nobel Prizes, but it was nevertheless a British first.
4: And in the evenings, after they'd finished all their duties, it was finally time to chill.
6: Sometimes we could just relax. There's usually a good hour where there's nothing scheduled, where you can just be together and look out of the window, talk about families and friends that we'd left behind.
4: The last couple of years had been strange for Helen. She'd quit her job, broken up with her boyfriend, and let's face it, I'm going to Russia to train as a cosmonaut is a pretty good excuse— She'd left her parents behind in England and moved to the USSR. But she was 27, single. Her whole life was ahead of her. For Sergei, it's different. He recently got married, to someone in mission control, actually, though she wasn't on this mission. And now they had a baby.
6: Sergei's daughter was born just a few months before we flew into space, and he would have missed her terribly. He knew that was what his mission was assigned to do, and he knew his wife would look after the daughter beautifully. But your babies grow up very quickly, and Sergei was going to miss a lot of that development.
4: Over five months in space, Sergei was going to watch his daughter Olga grow up on screen. He could only talk to his family every two weeks. He'd miss his daughter's first words, sitting up, crawling, and then her first
6: steps. That's a big deal, really. But he knew, you know, that that was his job, and he knew he was going to do that, so he would thought it all through, accepted it, that isolation from the earth, and the fact that you're not with all your friends and family anymore.
4: Over that week, Helen listens to the usually quiet Sergei begin to open up, about how he's missing summer in Moscow the long, warm evenings with friends and family, about how his daughter is growing up without him. Every time Sergei tells Helen a little bit more, and Helen finds herself looking forward to their evening chats. But then, all too soon, it's time for Helen to return to Earth. It must have felt weird after so much buildup and training, knowing at 27 the first line of your obit has already been written. But even stranger was having to leave space without Sergei and Anatoly.
6: And that final goodbye was heart-wrenching, because I knew I was leaving them behind in space. Not only had I enjoyed it and I didn't want to leave to return to Earth just then, but um, saying goodbye to what felt like then the two best friends I had ever had.
5: This morning it was warm farewells from the two cosmonauts staying behind to the Mir crew being relieved, and to Helen. They passed through the hatch into their Soyuz craft, which undocked from Mir, and just before half past ten this morning, fired its retro rockets. Less than half an hour later, they were parachuting to Earth, watched by mission control.
4: And when Helen landed back in the USSR, before going home to her parents, she actually visited Sergei's family.
6: I went round to visit his wife and his baby after I returned from space while Sergei was still in space.
4: That's how close they'd become.
6: And my hair was, you know, I'd had it cut quite short. And the baby Olga said, Dada,
4: when I arrived. Baby Olga called Helen dad. To her, Sergey was just some stranger with short hair, much like Helen. And that's when Helen realized exactly how much Sergey was missing. And now, Sergei finds himself missing Helen. Loneliness is starting to gnaw at him. Downtime on the space station seems to drag on forever. And one evening, almost out of boredom, Sergei starts flicking through the handover notes left by the previous crew. And that's when he sees something strange. Amongst the detailed log about technical issues and repairs, there's a series of scribbles numbers, letters, and symbols, each with dates and times next to them. It looks like some kind of call log, but cosmonauts only get one personal call every week or so. These are way more regular. It's beginning to look like the last crew weren't just using the radio to call home. They were speaking to people all over the world, to people in Taiwan or Ireland or Ohio, to people in their living room, to amateur radio operators. And there's one call sign that comes up again and again. And next to it, the word Australia, VK3CFI. Nervous. He tunes the radio to the right frequency. And waits. Nothing. The next day, he finds himself going through the motions until he can try again. Nothing. Days pass. Every night, he keeps coming back to the radio. Listening to the same old, empty crap. But one evening, just as he's about to call it quits a woman's voice fizzes into life. bk
3: 3 CFI.
0: This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
1: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob.
4: 1989, Australia, Kolak, a small town just outside Melbourne, 12,000 people, best known for its dairy farm. Somewhere in that town, a woman is in a makeshift radio shack in her house, trying to get through to the Soviet space station. It's VK3 CFI, Maggie Iaquinto.
5: I can remember her dancing around the kitchen, flinging a tea towel over her head, dancing to
4: some type of Balkan music. That's Ben, Maggie's son. Maggie died in 2014. But we spoke to her sons and to an Australian radio producer named Jessie Burrell, who sent us an interview she did with Maggie in 2011.
5: She had a quirky personality. She had a fun sense of humour. She liked puns. She liked bad action movies. She liked playing softball, she liked
4: Macedonian dancing. She spoke Russian. Maggie was born in America and learned Russian at college in the early 60s, during the height of the Cold War. She was just fascinated with the USSR. Maggie followed the news of the Soviet Union any way she could, reading the papers, listening to the radio, watching TV. She was convinced that one day she would visit. But then life got in the way. She met a guy and moved to Australia with him. She had two sons and started working as a computer teacher at the local high school in Kolak. The sights
5: of Kolak. Um, <laughs> uh,
4: there was a good bakery there. Not exactly what Maggie's dreams were made of. Even the bakery was closed on weekends. No Balkan dancing club. Definitely no Russians to talk to. It right? But Maggie... Had a secret weapon.
3: coaxial cable here. All right. And so that just comes into the radio shack here.
4: Ham radio.
3: I had always wanted to be a ham radio operator. When I was 15 or 16, I just wanted to do this.
4: Ham radio. A way for people to talk to each other from home using radio waves. A more advanced version of the tin can on a string. It promised freedom, independence, adventure.
3: There's no way that I can visit every country in the world, but I can with ham radio.
4: Maggie talked to all sorts of people and even went to ham radio conferences on weekends.
5: They would always be hosted at some sort of basketball court, and there'd just be tables set up along the walls, stacked with different types of gear, like different
4: types of radios. And everyone would call each other by their unique call sign. It's like code names a jumble of letters and numbers that shows who's calling and where from.
3: In Australia, all of the ham radio call signs start with VK. India is VU. VE is Canada. You get the idea. And three represents Victoria. So I'm VK3. And then the suffix, which is two letters or three, represents your unique identity. So I was VK3CFI. And no one else in the world can have that call sign.
4: And at these ham radio conferences, people would actually address Maggie not by her name, but by her call sign, this is the level of geekiness we're talking about. And then at one of these conferences, she starts hearing a rumor, a whisper going around the community that a handful of hams have managed to get through to space, not just any space, but space behind the iron curtain, the space station mirror. Maggie can't get it out of her head the idea of speaking to a real Soviet. And she starts thinking, maybe this is my chance to finally visit the USSR. Even if her little patch of the Soviet Union would be 250 miles up in space. And so Maggie gets to work. She had already turned her spare bedroom into a sort of radio shack, like something out of a 70s science fiction film. Cables, mics, audio equipment, and the radio itself. But even this gear isn't sophisticated enough to pick up the signal she's after, from space. The sheer distance makes it really, really hard. So Maggie buys a second radio for her kitchen and fixes a giant antenna to the roof of her house. Then she wires it all up to an old Toshiba laptop, a real doorstopper. Everything's set up, ready to go. Maggie tunes the transceiver to the right frequency for the Soviet space station. U-2-MIR. And nothing. She does this over and over again. Every day she wakes up before 5. While her sons are still sleeping, she pads into the kitchen, tunes in and listens. In the middle of the night, after she's finished work, Planned lessons, marked essays, made dinner, got her sons ready for bed. She sits up in the dark, listening. And usually, she's got the TV news on in the background. And every night, the news brings stories of chaos from the Soviet Union. Checkpoints across Berlin had finally buckled. The Berlin Wall falls, November 9, 1989. A few weeks later, in Czechoslovakia, the people overthrow the communist government.
6: It will give up its monopoly on power.
4: A month later, in Romania, people shoot their dictator.
6: Ceausescu is dead. So is his wife Elena.
4: Two years pass. You heard that right. Two years. And all this time, Maggie keeps trying to reach the Soviet space station getting up on the roof to tinker with her antenna, buying and borrowing every piece of equipment she can. But still, her chances are slim because Mir is in constant rotation around the earth. It's only above Australia for 10 minutes a time, a few times a day. To catch it, Mackie has to be on the right frequency at the exact right time. And she starts to feel like she's running out of options, like nothing she tries is working until one warm morning in January 1991. The sun is just beginning to spread across the roofs of Kolak, and Maggie sits in a radio shack, sipping a warm cup of coffee.
3: And I heard this deep, heavy Russian going, CQ, CQ, CQ. This is U2MIR, looking for contacts. I have been waiting two years to talk to you. года, я жду, жду two года to talk to you. So I am such a happy person. I am very, very happy. And what can I tell you about Australia?
0: Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
1: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob.
4: Finally, Maggie had reached the Soviet Union, and soon the person she was speaking to almost every day was Sergei Krakalev.
5: I remember waking up one morning. There would be this loud, static...
3: It'd be 5 in the morning, 5.30 in the morning. Our time is when they're having their free time. Rita! Rita! Rita. They go, talk to us!
5: <laughs> See this deep, powerful Russian voice... Calling my mother, Rita. 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 Rita good day. You would just get shocked into a waking.
3: And you hear this thick Russian accent. This guy, so, you know, you put in your glasses and you kind of stumble down the hall into the Radio Shack. Oh yeah, good morning, good evening. <laughs> good
4: day. They would speak in a mixture of English and Russian. Maggie called it Runglish.
3: Yes, I'm sure have a husband and two little sons over? Do you have a wife?
4: Do you have any children? He even talked to the students in her computer class. In the house would be packed with, with students
5: from school and they would line up to ask questions. And Maggie would translate.
3: Hi, do you like your food? And I
5: can remember they were speaking in these really strong Australian accents like Sergey, what do you eat in spice?
3: What do you do when you feel
4: a drink? The communication wasn't always the smoothest, but that didn't matter.
3: The desire to communicate, that was the truly wonderful part about being a ham radio operator. You, uh, Sergei was really into ham radio. Oh my goodness.
4: In fact, he called her more than she called him.
3: Sergei and I had this relationship, and he wanted to communicate with me.
4: Sergei needed Maggie, because deep down, he was struggling. When Sergei left the Soviet Union, the country was in turmoil. Food was in short supply millions were taking to the streets in protest. There was this tinderbox feeling, like anything could happen. And now whenever he asks Mission Control what's going on back home, he gets a breezy, it's fine. A brush off, a change of subject. So he gets uneasy, frustrated. But then Sergei realizes there is a way he can get information. Information that isn't filtered through Mission Control. And he can get that from his friend in Australia, from Maggie. And so he asks her, what's going on in my country? What are you hearing?
3: I would just scour the newspapers and I'd rewrite articles in very simple English. And I would leave it
4: on my system. She figured out a way to send the computer on mere written messages, which meant she could type up news. It was easier than reading out whole articles over a bad connection.
3: My own system was a tiny bulletin board. They would read those articles. They loved reading all that stuff. They didn't get that information from their own central. So I was their information source.
4: Moscow was losing its grip on the Soviet Union.
3: The rebels are using every
2: kind of weapon they can lay hands on.
4: After 72 years of foreign domination, Armenia has declared
0: itself independent from the Soviet Union.
4: Sergei starts to feel like he's losing it. Far away from home, floating in a black void, left in the dark. Until finally in July, 1991, Mission Control calls him. They say, look, there's a problem. States are breaking away and we're worried Kazakhstan will be next. If we lose Kazakhstan, we lose our launch pad Baikonur. If we lose Baikonur, we lose our access to space. But they say, we've got an idea. We want to send a Kazakh cosmonaut to Mir, as an olive branch, a way to keep the Kazakhs on our side. Thing is, and here's the hitch, he's not experienced and he's not an engineer he definitely won't be able to take care of the station. So Sergei, we're giving you a choice. You can come back to Earth, back to your family as planned, and abandon the station to an unknown fate. Or you can stay as long as it takes and protect the station, our last hope. You have three hours to decide, to stay or to go. That's next time on The Last Soviet. The Last Soviet is a Kaleidoscope production in partnership with iHeart Podcast and Exile Media, produced by Samizdat Audio and hosted by me, Lance Bass. Executive produced by Kate Osborne and Mangesh Hadikador With Oz Woleshen and Kostas Linos. From iHeart, executive produced by Katrina Norvell and Nikki Ettore. From Samasdad Audio, our executive producers are Joe Sykes and Dasha Litsitsina. Produced by Asia Fuchs, Dasha Litsitsina, and Joe Sykes. Writing by Lydia Marchant. Research by Mika Golubowski and Molly Schwartz. Music by Will Epstein. Theme by Martin Orstrich. Mixing and sound design by Richard Ward. And special thanks to Nando Villa, Melissa Pollock, Will Pearson, Connell Byrne, Bob Pittman, and Isaac Lee. Many thanks to Ben and Josh Iaquinto for letting us use some of their mom Maggie's incredible recordings. And to Australian radio producer Jessie Burrell for the interview she did with Maggie in 2011. If you want to hear more shows like this, Nothing is more important to the creators here at Kaleidoscope than subscribers, ratings, and reviews. So please spread the love wherever you listen.